Well, it's a real honor to have our special missionary guest with us today, Pete Boulette. And I got a chance to meet Pete last night. I really didn't know him prior to this weekend. And so uh, Pete and I, Pastor Dan from the North Campus, the North Campus missionary speaker for this morning there and tonight. And so we got together last night for dinner, met, met at a restaurant. Uh, by the way, it was a restaurant that had TVs because we needed to watch one of God's favorite football teams, the first half of that game. And we were able to do that. And I didn't say the, but one of the, and, but we all know which one's favorite, but that's another story. But we just hung out, had a great time. Pete is a fantastic missionary. And uh, some of you are thinking that missionaries are only those who are overseas. And, and we have missionaries right here at home. Pete would be considered being part really of, of like home missions because it's in the state, but it's through a wonderful, wonderful thing. Some of you have never heard of Chi Alpha and uh, he's got a touch on that, but Chi Alpha, my understanding, I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, involved in leading Chi Alpha, but when sort of an outsider looking in, when I think of Chi Alpha, I think of these great men and women of God that are on these secular universities and what they're doing is they're being a bright light for Christ in the place where they are. And really we have a lot of our Christian kids, some of you know this, uh, that they, they go away, they grow up in church and they go away to a secular university and, and their faith is challenged. You know, they're told that God doesn't exist. The Bible's not true. You know, the validity of Jesus' life, he's not deity, he's not the son of God. And really a lot of them uh, tragically uh, lose their faith were it not for something like Chi Alpha to just help them hang on to the moorings and the anchor of what they know and were taught that is true. But another thing Chi Alpha does is uh, for many of these universities across America, international students come in and and unchurched and atheist uh, students right here in our own nation and they come in and Chi Alpha becomes an evangelistic tool in the hands of God. And so for many years, this is what Pete and his wife have been doing. They were a part of Chi Alpha at Southern Illinois where they graduated from. They met there. They got married after they graduated and they moved to St. Louis. When they moved to St. Louis, Pete was actually a CPA in St. Louis and his wife was a registered uh, dietitian. And then after about a year of that, the ministry that they were actually a part of as university students, they felt God calling them to lead a Chi Alpha organization. And so they went away to Georgetown University and they were there serving for a year training uh, and being equipped for a year. And then back in 2000, they went to Charlottesville, Virginia, and it was there where they launched the great Chi Alpha ministry at the universe, University of Virginia that has become one of the largest in the nation today. They're great missionaries. I heard the message already. I can't wait to hear it once again. You're going to be so blessed. They have three wonderful kids back home. I want you to put your hands together and give a huge welcome to Pete Bulet as he comes to speak. Thank you, Pete. Well, Victor Church, how we doing? We're doing well. It's good to be here. I think you did a great job sharing the vision of Chi Alpha. Uh, I was the person who'd grown up in the church and who had just gotten right with the Lord right before I went off to college, and I was discipled, and it changed my life. And then my wife was an agnostic when she went off to college, and uh, alone in her dorm room, she accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, and Chi Alpha was so influential in her growth and development. So we went into campus ministry not knowing what could happen, but what had happened in our own lives, and we had have seen it happen in hundreds of students' lives since. I tell people when we started Chi Alpha at UVA, um, she was Chi, I was Alpha. That was it, baby. Like no one even knew what Chi Alpha was at UVA. You know, I was like, what's Chi Alpha? Anyways, uh, 
Yeah, no one knew what it was. And now today, we've over the last 18 years, we've gone from zero to over 550 students involved in Chi Alpha on a weekly basis. And every four years, that's a new, new 550 students because they all graduate. And we see ourselves as a farm system for the kingdom of God, where people come in, um, come to know Christ, get discipled and sent out to their God-given purpose. And for many of them, that leads them to the nations, which we will talk about soon. Well, I grew up playing a lot of sports. I played pretty much every sport my little town had to offer. Um, played basketball and football, to name a couple. Well, there was a town that we feared to play. I know you shouldn't fear a town right, you know, when you're on a, on a team, but there was a town that we feared to play. It was uh, the town of Mount Vernon, Illinois, the Mount Vernon Rams. And it was our freshman year of, of football, fall season, and we had to go to Mount Vernon's home turf and play them on their own field. Now, I am convinced that at Mount Vernon babies are born with little helmets and chin straps and that they start hitting the blocking sleds in preschool. That's the perfunctory uh, PE, you know, hit the blocking sleds. These dudes were mean, okay? And when, when we got there, we we're like, oh boy, here we are, right? Got off, got off our yellow bus and walking around. Anyways, uh, second quarter. We're already down by several touchdowns. The stretcher has already been out on the field a couple times at a line with a broken foot. And now our quarterback is on the field and he is not getting up. And we're like, uh, I'm, I'm staying on the sidelines like, Josh, you got to get up, bro. You've got to get up. He's not getting up. Okay, so here's the problem. Um, our, our backup quarterback was five foot two, 99 pounds. And it was me. So I'm like, dude, you got to get up, you know, he doesn't get up. So they're like, get in there, Bulette. So I, I, I run out on the field like I know what I'm doing. I do not know what I'm doing. Um, I remember it was third down. I call a pass play, safety blitz. I get sacked for five yard loss. Next, um, next possession, I don't re remember. I'm still going to counseling trying to remember that. But no, anyways, I don't have a clue what happened. Um, they call a timeout or coaches call a timeout and I uh, have to, all right, so I'm standing there. Our, our coaches go to, to the middle of the field, and they have a conference with the, with the referees. And we're like, what's going on? Three minutes later, they come back, and they say, boys, get on the bus. We just forfeited the rest of the game. Have you ever heard of such a thing? I've never heard of such a thing other than this one time. We forfeited in the middle of the second quarter. I guess they didn't really, really want me to be quarterback any longer. Um, yeah, that's... That's the way that ended. Try going to school the next day. How'd the game go? Well, we forfeited in the middle of the game. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't go over well. Anyways, um, it was basketball season. And guess where we had to go? We had to go to Mount Vernon and play them on their home court. At the end of the first eight-minute quarter. Okay, eight minutes. The score was 27 to 1. We scored one free throw. Steve Willis made one free throw. Beyond that, I don't think we got the ball across half court. Okay. Why am I telling you these stories? Well, I'm telling you stories for a reason. Because if you are a sports fan, there's something that you know. There's a key that Vegas considers as they set the lines for games. And this, because this key is, is so influential. And the way games turn out, it, is, it has to be considered. And it's called this, the home field advantage. Right? Which team has the home field advantage? They're most likely to win because there's something about playing in your own, uh, around your own fans and 
being in your own locker room and having your own field or your own court, that changes the outcome of the game many times. And what we're going to look at today is this. We're going to look at Jesus enter into a, a, a duel with the powers of darkness where they have the ultimate home court advantage. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open to Mark chapter 5. Now, if you are familiar with the gospel of Mark, you'll know this, that Mark is the most shortest, the most succinct gospel that we have of the four. And it, it's, it's kind of this quick hitting gospel. Things move really, really fast. And then when you come to this story, it's like it goes into a slow groove. It's a, you, you feel the beat just kind of slow down. And as the beat slows down, we get incredible detail over this story because the gospel writer doesn't just want you to hear it. He wants you to feel it. So that's what we're going to do tonight or today. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says this, They, and that's speaking of Jesus and the disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tomb so that no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been chained hand and foot, and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Okay. The gospel writer speaks of how this man would, would, would cry out in agony at night because he wants you to feel the desperation of the darkness. He talks about how he lived in the tombs and literally surrounded by death and he would gash himself with stones at night because he wants you to understand how this man was, was dominated by darkness. And then he talks about how this man could not be, could, could not be subdued. He, he, he couldn't, no one could control him. He had, he had break chains because he wants you to understand the power of the darkness that was in this man. And we'll see what happens says this in verse 6, when he saw Jesus at a di from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And all the disciples went, oh, I think I'll be in the boat. <laughs> right? Anyways. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake, and they were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and, and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and it freaked them out. Okay, let me, 
set the table so we can understand the magnitude of this encounter that Jesus had with this demoniac. Here's what you have. You have Jesus who is in a Gentile city, which was considered hostile area if you're a Jewish young man. Not only that, he's, he finds himself surrounded by a graveyard, which would have been an unclean area. In a host- so he's in a hostile town in an unclean area, surrounded by thousands of pigs, which were unclean animals. And he meets a man who's fill- filled with unclean spirits. Okay, so a legion in that day was 6,000. It was a, a term that was used in a Roman regiment of 6,000 soldiers. So this man has thousands of demons at work in his life. So you have a hostile environment in a hostile city and surrounded by unclean land and unclean animals facing a man teeming with unclean spirits. The point is the gospel writers trying to paint a picture for you that this is the darkest place imaginable. This, the powers of darkness have the ultimate home court advantage. Okay. So here's what I want you to picture. I want you to picture, um, coming out of the tunnel of a, of a stadium onto Steve Spurrier field. Okay, I want you to picture the, the power, the demonic powers taking the field. So you have hundreds and hundreds of demons rushing the field and they've got their gear on, dark, they're doing chest bumps and right? Ready for the showdown, right? And there's hundreds coming out of the tunnel and hundreds more and more and more. I mean, the sideline's getting full. Where are they all going to go? And more, and more, and more come out. And on the other sideline, you just have Jesus and his authority. And what does the text say? They take the field. Jesus at one end, the, the legion of demons at the other end, they're, they're, they have backup, they have reinforcements for the showdown. And it says that, that the demons start charging at Jesus and this man, right? He, they start charging Jesus and as they get close to Jesus, something powerful happens. They start to fall down on their knees and beg for mercy. See, here's what the demonic powers knew. They knew that they may be legion, but they are still out man because they knew this legion versus one. When the one is Jesus, that they are still overpowered. And here's the fundamental truth that we learn in this text. And it is this, that there is no place too dark for Jesus to be victorious. There's no place in your life too dark for Jesus to be victorious. There's no place in our country too dark. There's no place in this city too dark. And there's no country in the world too dark for Jesus to be victorious. And this scene reminds us that even when the enemy has the ultimate home court advantage in the darkest place imaginable, Jesus is stronger. And I started thinking about how, how this has been true at the secular university. A lot of people see the secular universities as a place that, that there are bastions of, of terrible things. And there is some of that that goes on. But let me tell you, there's another story happening on the universities in America. And that is Jesus is being victorious. I, was thinking, I could tell you hundreds of stories of, of people who we've seen come to Christ and baptize in water and their life be changed. And I was thinking as, as I was worshiping during the first service of this young uh, girl by the name of Kara. She was a first year and she grew up in an atheist home. Her parents were atheists and, and she just moved into to, to campus and we had a, a, a grill fired up where we were doing s'mores outside of her grill. So she stopped to have a s'more and uh, it was a 
a bit of a divine appointment for her life. She met a young lady by the name of Amy who um, started to just get to know her. And, and as a result of, of their conversation, Amy stepped, uh, kept uh, trying to connect with Kara and Kara ended up in her small group. And they started studying the Bible together. They started to walk through the book of Luke one-on-one, just reading the Bible together with this girl who'd grown up in an atheist home. And when they came to Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, Kara opened her life to Christ and Jesus invaded her heart. And in the midst of the darkness, Jesus was victorious. She began to follow Jesus. Her life was changed. She broke up with her old boyfriend. And her, on, the, on that phone conversation, she, he said this, Kara, you're different. She said, you know what? You're right. I am different. Today, she married another Chi Alpha alum of ours. And she actually works for an organization called Veritas that goes around up and down the East Coast having forums for people to learn about Jesus who don't know Jesus. Jesus brought victory in the darkness. Let me tell you one more story. I, I have a picture of this young lady. Her name is Sarah. Sarah was also, uh, grew up with an atheist dad and a Jehovah, Jehovah Witness mom, which meant she didn't grow up celebrating her birthday because of the Jehovah Witness influence in her house. Anyways, she uh, met, uh, well, her roommate was going to a party on move-in day, and so she came with her roommate, and she met a lot of people in Chi Alpha, and she said she had experienced love at that party that she did not know was possible. And she also saw a peace that she thought was previously unattainable. And the small group leaders kept coming to her, her room, knocking on the door so much so that finally there's a, her, her roommate who'd actually introduced her kind of says like, you need to get in touch with them because they just keep coming. So she did get in touch with them. They gave her a Bible, a light for the lost Bible. And um, she started going to core group and studying the Bible. She went on a retreat, our fall retreat. And that Friday night, she went back to her room and she was talking to her core group leader and she said to her core group leader, our, which is what our, we call our small group, she said, I'm not sure that God would want me and his family. And her core group leader said something very astute. She said this. She said, well, the Bible says Jesus came for the sick, not for the healthy. That next night, she stepped out of the meeting and a young lady met her outside and they started talking and she prayed to receive Christ and it was her birthday that day. And when she walked in, her small group had prepared a party for her. They had a tiara that they put on her head. They put her in a chair and they lifted her up and walked her around with hundreds of other college students celebrating her, her new life in Christ as well as her biological birthday, which had never been celebrated before. And it changed her life. And you know what? Today, she serves on staff with me. And this fall, she spoke at her own fall retreat because what God has done in her, he's now doing through her. God is bringing victory in the midst of the darkness of secular universities. Isn't that good news? And I could tell you story after story because there is no place too dark in our country for Jesus to be victorious. Let me tell you this. There's no country in the world too dark for Jesus to be victorious. The post-secular Europe, I mean, I'm sorry, post-Christian secular Europe is not too dark for Jesus to be victorious. The Muslim world is not too dark for Jesus to be victorious. Oman is not too dark. Egypt is not too dark. Jordan is not too dark. Morocco is not too dark. I got an email two weeks ago from one of our alum who said, who talked about how they had just seen one of their friends in Morocco who was a, a, a Muslim young man become a follower of Jesus right there in Morocco. Here's the the point. There is no place too dark 
for Jesus to be victorious. A few years ago, I was in Cairo, Egypt, and in Cairo, there are 4,000 minarets that give the call of prayer five times a day. That's 20,000 calls of prayer that go around that city every day to a false god. And I thought to myself, would it be possible someday for Cairo to be known for loving Jesus rather than a, a, a stronghold of Islam? And in, in, in your natural, you're like, this is, I don't know how in the world this could ever happen. But while I was there, I learned a little bit about the history of Egypt. And you know that Egypt has had many empires rule it over history. The Babylonian Empire, one day controlled Egypt. And then um, the Roman Empire controlled Egypt. And if you lived in that day, you would never see the day where the Babylonian or the Roman Empire would someday be toppled. But we know historically what happened. They were toppled. So here's what we know. We know that historically it's possible. We know biblically that there's no place for, too dark for Jesus to be victorious. So it's possible. And it may take decades. It may take centuries. But we know that it is not too dark for Jesus to be victorious. I have a question for you. Do you believe it? Do you have a high and glorious view of Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God? Because this is the apostolic hope that causes people to leave family and friends and comfort and move into the darkest places in the world. This is what causes them to, to pray big prayers of faith. What causes people to give generously to the mission. What causes people to serve sacrificially. It's this apostolic hope that there's no place too dark for Jesus to be victorious. Well, let's keep on. Verse 16 says this, those who had seen it told the people what had happened to this demon-possessed man, and I love this, and they told about the pigs as well. Um, <clears throat> the pigs, gone. <laughs> if you're a pig farmer, that's not good news. Um, then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. I find this fascinating. Okay, they just seen Jesus change the person that seemed the most out of control and the most hopeless situation in their community. And what do they do? They ask him to leave. Why do they ask him to leave? Because of their pigs. If you, you're like, really? They weren't your pigs, right? If you just had, here's the point. Here's the point. They were more focused on the cost of the vic victory than they were the glory of the victory. They were more focused on what the victory cost than what the victory accomplished. And here's the point. The, because they asked Jesus to leave, his victory in that area was temporarily impeded because they were unwilling to embrace the cost of the victory. Victory is possible, but it will come at a cost. See, here's what I know. It's one thing to believe there's no place too dark for Jesus to be victorious. It's another thing to embrace the cost of that victory. Are we willing to embrace the cost of seeing that victory come into the darkness? Let me tell you a story, I have a picture. Um, this is a picture of four of our alum that after graduation, they served on the mission field in Cairo to help launch the Live Dead team uh, in Cairo, which is an organization that plants the church where it is not 
And so they were um, in, in Cairo at a, at a training center, and they'd been there to give a year and pray about a lifetime. Their year was coming to a conclusion, and uh, there's actually seven of them, but four of them are involved in this story. And three of them, three of the guys were talking, what are you going to do after this year? Well, two of them decided that they were going to uh, stay and, and, and uh, stay a part of the team for two more years and not return to the States. The other one is a civil engineer, and he said, I feel like the Lord would have me go back and get a job, and, and so I think that's what I'm going to do. And so he was going to go back to get a job. Well, the young lady, Sarah, um, they had heard, wanted to stay, but she couldn't stay because she had student loans that she needed to pay off. And so they started talking among themselves, said, what if we offered to pay off her student loans for her so she could stay? Now, they didn't know how much her student loans were, Okay. By the way, the guy that's going back, he doesn't have a job yet. And the two who are staying, they're on a missionary budget, but they're like, what if we sacrificially embrace the cost to pay off her student loans so she can stay? So they say, hey, if we, if we pay for your student loans, will you stay? And she said, of course I'd stay. I'd love to stay. I just have these student loans. And so what they did for the next 20 months, once a month, they would get on and they would uh, get on online on her um, student loan website and pay them off directly. And in the next 20 months, these three young 20s men paid off $26,000 of student debt. $26,000. Why? Because they were willing to embrace the cost. By the way, one of those guys ended up marrying Sarah. That's what you call sowing and reaping, bro. That's sowing and reaping, man. That's... And the other guy who, who didn't have a job, he comes back, and I don't have time to share the story, but God supernaturally gave him a job. He committed to help pay those off before he even had a job. That's what happens when people embrace the cost of victory. Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to personally embrace the cost of his victory over the darkness through sacrificial giving? Well, let's uh, complete this story. There's a few more verses. It says this. As Jesus was getting into the boat, because he's been asked to leave the area, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus didn't let him go. He said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Okay, I find this fascinating as well. Here's what you get in the story. You get demons who have a request to be thrown into pigs. Jesus grants them their request. Then you have these people who are upset because their pigs are gone and they ask Jesus to leave and Jesus grants them their request. Now you have a guy who is formerly demon possessed who's sitting there in his right mind who loves Jesus and says, Jesus, can I go with you? And Jesus says, no. And you're like, wait a second, excuse me? Why won't Jesus let him go? Here's the reason why. Because Jesus has plans and purposes for this guy, and he wants to send him right back into the darkness to keep furthering his victory in darkness. And here's what you learn from this passage. You guys ready for this? Here's what you learn. is that Jesus loves to send people into the darkness. He loves to send people into the darkness. Here's a man whose future had been ruined and Jesus restores it. And what does he do? He says, I have plans and purposes for you. So I want you to head back into the darkness and tell people about me. Well, 
This guy does it. And boy, does he ever do it. When the next time that, that Jesus comes to the area, Jesus has to feed 4,000 people. The crowd is so big. That dude had been working overtime. What, what's the point here? The point is this. It is a picture of the ripple effects of what can happen when one person has an apostolic hope and says, yes, I will go into the darkness and then embraces the cost and says, Jesus, use me. Jesus loves to send people into the darkness. On a secular campus where people are training to be world-class scientists and people are, are uh, training to be doctors and attorneys and, and school teachers and business people. I and mean, we have alum who work for Facebook and Amazon, you name it, where people are training for all these things. What we're seeing is that Jesus loves to send people into the darkness. We've had from our one campus, we are not a Bible college, okay? From our one secular campus, we have seen 60 plus alum give a year and pray about a lifetime in some of the darkest, most inhospitable places in the world. Places like Jordan, places like Tunisia, places like Morocco, places like, like Iraq, Spain, France, Indonesia. We've... We, why? Because Jesus loves to send people into the darkness. Not only that, we've had over 40 who've done the internship with us and given a year and prayed about a lifetime for campus ministry so they can be a part of the farm system of sending more people. We've had over 100 alum who have given a year or more, and many of them a lifetime. Because Jesus loves to send people into the darkness. In a church this size, and with God's heart for the nations, I have to believe that there are people who are here today that Jesus is calling to walk into the darkness with him so they can be a part of seeing victory in places that seem really dark. Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to say yes if he were to ask you to do that? Are you willing? Because here's what I know. The question of God's will is irrelevant until there's a willingness to say yes. And if you say, yes, I am willing, then even if he says, you know what? That's not what I have for you. I want you to be right here in Lakeland, Florida. I want you to be ambassador for me right here. If, if he tells you to do that, you will be here differently because your heart has been circumcised in a way to say, yes, I will stay here. Or I mean, I will go wherever you want me to go. When, where, how, I don't care. I will follow you anywhere. Even if he has you stay here, you'll stay differently. You'll give differently. Your life will be different. And so the question is, would you be willing? I'm gonna close with an image and then I'm gonna ask a few questions. There was a missionary pioneer who came up with a picture of missions that has always stuck with me. He said that missions is like descending into the darkness to rescue people out of the darkness for the glory of God and the nations. And he talked about how if for every person who descends, there must be people who are willing to hold the rope as they descend into the darkness. In fact, you need a team of people to hold the rope. And that's what people who give to missions and support missions are. They're rope holders, 
okay? There are people who are providing the, the stability and the security for the person who's going down into the hole to actually uh, be able to, to, to go down. And they need people who are holding the rope. And the question is this, who's more important, the people who are holding the rope or the people who are going down into the hole? That's a trick question. You can't answer it. Both are needed. But let me tell you about a tragedy that happens. I've seen it happen. People who are willing to go down into the hole, but they can't find somebody to hold the rope. They're running around asking people to hold the rope and people are too busy. Hands are too full of bags to pick up a rope. I've watched alum who come from non-Christian backgrounds get radical for Jesus and want to go to the mission field and they can't find people to hold the rope. Wow, what a powerful church you guys are that holds 189 ropes. Those 189 people are counting on you to vigorously hold the rope and never let go. And then there's other people who are going to come say, we need somebody to hold the rope and your church, you guys would love to say, yes, we'd, we'd, give me that rope. Till you're holding 200 plus ropes. Let me ask you some questions. Number one, do you really believe that there's no place too dark for Jesus to be victorious? Do you really, do you have that apostolic hope that when you send these precious ambassadors of Christ that victory is possible. It's not futility, but victory that waits. Number two, are we willing to embrace the cost of that victory? Because it won't come easy and it won't be cheap. It will involve sacrificial, generous giving. Or will our legacy be like the legacy of that town that said, you know what, uh, the victory's too costly. And then finally, or let me ask that question a little differently. <laughs> are we willing to embrace the cost? Let me ask that question a little differently. Whose rope are you going to hold? Will you put down the bags and get a rope? And finally, are you willing? Are you willing, if Jesus wants you to go into the darkness, to follow him into the darkness with the hope that victory is possible? that a flicker of light can come on in the midst of the darkness that will turn a place of darkness into a place of light. Let's close in prayer.
Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church and for years how they've been a church that has held ropes. And I pray that this morning that you would turn afresh in their heart. You would fan their heart afresh into flame with the apostolic hope that there is no place too dark for Jesus to be victorious. I pray, oh God, that, that you would cause these people's hearts to be open to, to the cost. That we as your people would embrace the cost of that victory, whatever it means for us. That we would give generously. That we would hold ropes vigorously. And I also pray, oh God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd give us the grace to have a willingness to go wherever, whenever you would ask. We pray this for your glory, the nation's good, and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Would you say thank you to Pete? Will you do so? Everybody, thank you. Now, what we're about to do is so absolutely important. I do not want anybody moving around. Please, nobody move around, nobody leaving for the next few moments. Of course, if it's an emergency, but other than an emergency, I want everybody to hold tight because this is so very, very important, what we're about to do. You heard Pete mention just a moment ago that, you know, for some of you, God may be calling you, and that's entirely possible. There may be those of you that are here right now, and you're like, you know what? I just sent something stirring when Pete was just sort of hitting that area. I'm just like, God, what are you saying to me? What do you want me to do? Are you calling me? Are, are you going to send me into a dark place? And maybe you're thinking about that or wondering about that now. Would you just let us know? You can see Pete or you can see me at the conclusion of the service. And we can sort of talk that out a little bit. But Because some of you, God's going to say, go. For all of us, God is going to say, pray. That's why we talk about this missions prayer journal, the importance of having it so we can pray for our missionaries, all of them, 189 of them. That's why we encourage you to adopt a missionary. You're not sending them monthly money or anything like that. You're just saying, hey, I'm staying in contact with you, and I want you to know I know where you're at, and I'm praying for you, and, and we all pray. And then some go and all pray and then all give. And that's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to make a missionary faith promise that will begin in January of next year. It will go uh, January through December of next year. And, you know, I was thinking about that, and uh, I've been doing this for a long, long time, a missionary faith promise. And I'm going to lead you in something that I started doing when I was 16 years old. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to reach in your bulletin, and I want you to take out this mission, faith, promise card in the envelope that is there with it. It just simply says, World Missions Victory Church, My Mission, Faith, Promise. It's a white envelope with some orange print on that. I want everybody to reach in your bulletin and take that out. And in case you didn't get a bulletin or you don't have a card, you got a bulletin, but a card's not in it, I want you to just raise your hand. We've got some ushers, and they have some extra cards. If you don't have one of these cards, because I want everybody to do this, I want everybody to participate. You just lift your hand if you don't have one of these Mission Faith Promise cards in envelope. You raise your hand and uh, right back there, if you guys would just look around right up there and just keep your hand up 
until they come to you. Keep it up until they come to you. Or you may have a mission faith promise uh, card, but you, uh, you don't have a pen. They've got some extra pens. And, and lift your hand, whether you need a card or a pen or both, and they'll make their way over because all of us are going to do this together. Here's what a mission faith promise is. A mission faith promise, uh, the best way I know how to explain it is the most simple way I know how to explain it. It's something, again, that I've been doing a long, long time. A mission faith promise says, you know, here's what I'm going to do. As God enables me, I'm going to give a certain amount of money every single month toward the mission program, you know, of the church. And I did this when I was a 16-year-old kid. I've done it ever since. By God's grace, and I don't say this, you know, except to challenge you, in 2019, I will give more in 2019 to missions than I've ever given in any previous year. And for those of you that have made a missions faith promise in the past, I'm going to ask you to join me in doing that, to say, you know what? I'm going to trust God for more this year. And here's the cool thing about a mission faith promise. If God doesn't provide it, you don't have to give it. You're off the hook. But what you're simply saying is, I want the faith to believe. I want the faith to believe, and I know that I need to support. I need to support. I need, I love Pete's analogy. I need to hold the rope for those who have descended into darkness. If I'm not going, the least I can do is hold the rope to pray for them and financially support them every single month. And so that mission faith promise just says, you know what? I've got to have faith to believe that God's going to provide it if I'm willing to give it. And then, you know what it is? It's, it's more than just like... Um, it's more than just a pledge. A pledge says, hey, I will give it. And then typically when you make a pledge and you don't match the pledge, somebody gets in contact with you, they call you or they send you a letter. And we never, never do that. We never do that with the missions faith promise. We just simply say, this is something between you and God. You said, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm trusting God to give me X amount of dollars per month. And if God gives it to me, I'm going to give it. And you say, well, if it's between me and God, then why do I have to fill out the card? The card helps us in this regard. We support 189 different missionaries every single month, but there's so many more that we want to support. And so when you step out in faith as an individual or as a family, you know what we're going to do? We're going to also step out in faith as a church, and we're going to say, you know what? We may not have it yet, but we're going to take it. And we've done this again and again. This has been our history. This has been our pattern. And so for those of you that have made, and we're all going to do this together, I hope you've got your pen ready. I hope you've got your card ready. I'm going to lead you while I complete my card. You're going to complete yours. And uh, here's what I'm asking you to do. When you com complete your faith promise, if you're like me, you've been doing this for a long, long time, trust God for an amount that will exceed any amount that you've given in any previous year. And that's what I'm going to do. And if God doesn't provide it, you're not going to give it or I'm not going to give. But I'm going to trust God for a larger amount than I've given before. Now, for those of you that this is like brand new to you and you're like, you know, Jeff, I've never done anything like this. I believe, I know God wants me to do it. You know, God's not called me to go, but he's called me to pray and he certainly called me to give. And then where do I start? What do I do? Again, it just starts in January of next year through December. And maybe you just say, God, you know, what do you want me to do? How big is my faith going to be? How big is my faith going to be? And you just pray, and we're going to pray in a moment. And some of you have already been praying about this because you got something in the mail. You're a part of the church's mailing list. We ask you in there to pray, and you just say, God, show me the amount. And here's what I'd ask because I think it would be helpful to you. Hear me out on this, if you will. It won't take me long to say this. If you're like, where do I even start? I don't even know where to start. Then here's what I challenge people to do. I challenge you to just think for just a moment about your own personal budget. And, and think about, all right, I'll give you some examples. Think about how much money you spend every single month for cable television or for your cell phones or for insurance or for debt that you've accumulated. You pay a certain amount of money every single month to try to get rid of that debt or a membership. 
uh, gym membership or some kind of hobby or something every single, and you look at that number and you say, wow, 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 I, I spend a lot of money on that every single month. And then you say, well, what can I do to support those who are going into darkness, to tell people that don't know about Jesus about Jesus? And then, man, I think when you start, God starts increasing your faith, and you'll just have this revelation from God. It's like, if I could do this for that, by all means, for something that's not going to matter in light of eternity, how much more should I do for missions? And so, God, I'm going to trust you, and you write down what is a faith number, and you just trust God that he's going to provide you. So let me pray with us. Father, right now as we get ready to make this missions faith promise that starts next year, I pray that you would give us faith. I pray that we'd look at all the money we spend on things that just won't last and say, God, we can do something that will have eternal significance for people to hear about you, to support those, to hold those ropes of those who are willing to go. And I pray that we'll trust you for a huge amount. And Lord, we ask it, whatever it is, whether it's got a $500 a month or $100 a month or 50 a month or 1000 a month or whatever it is, but all of us will just trust you for whatever it is and we'll believe and when you provide it next year, we'll give it. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. So would you take your pen and we'll complete these together. 2019 Mission Faith Promise. And some people do it weekly, but most people, and this is what I do, I give it monthly. So you just write every single month, I'm trusting God for a certain amount of money. Let me say something about that. If you just say, wow, that seems like a big amount. Let me just tell you who's not giving you that big amount. The devil's not giving you that big amount. If you're saying that seems like a large amount, is the devil, no, the devil does not want you to support missions. So it's not coming from him. Maybe that God's just increasing your faith. So you write that down and then you put your name, just write it out there doing that. If you say, well, I don't, I don't have a clue what to put. Well, just hang on. I'll come, I'll come complete your card for you. You just hang on to it right there. I'm just kidding, of course. And just put your address. All right. City, info. All right. You do that, and then you just sign it. Here's what I'm trusting the Lord for. Some of you would want to give a, a missions gift sometime between now and December 9 toward missionaries, just like our missionary today in the missions program of our church. So you've completed the faith promise card. You got it. Wave at it like this. You got it. So just put it in an envelope. That's what I'm doing. Just seal it up. All right. Usher's got to receive it. We're going to do a portion of a song. Nobody leave. Nobody, nobody, nobody leave. Hang in here. We're going to collect this really quick, and then I want to come back and say something to you, and then we're gone. All right?
Hey, will you stand with me, everybody? And just real, real quick, as we get ready to leave, would you once again put your hands together and let Pete Bulette know how much you've appreciated. What a great, great job he did in that message. Secondly, I want to say to you, thank you for your mission's faith promise. Thank you for trusting God. I told you I've been doing this since I was 16 years old. You know what I found? Every single year, every single year, God has always come through. And then lastly, I want to encourage you not only to be here next week. I'm going to share a passage. As far as I can remember, I've never shared this passage in a talk before. And it has a real serious evangelistic component to it. The reason I mention that, there are people that you have in your family and friends that you have, people that you work with, that they don't know Jesus yet. And I'm going to give them something to really think about next week if you'll get them here. And that message is going to encourage you and it's going to get their wheels going. So I hope you'll bring them here. I love you, everybody. Have an awesome week. See you right back here next Sunday.